as healthcare professionals, we are very focused to our art, to our profession. We, we learn every day. We're lifelong learners about medicine, about how to care for people. Uh, but we neglect ourselves a lot. And that's the one downside of healthcare professionals. We care about other people, but we neglect ourselves. And, and at the end of the day, when you look at physicians and dentists and nurses, and you know, they're not different. You know, we're all the same. We we're very good at what we do. We master our art, but we neglect a very a big chunk of our lives, which is the finance side of our, our life. And we leave it to someone. Uh, and that someone that advisor could be a certified advisor. It could not be a certified advisor. And we don't know, and we don't, we don't care to know. And then you end up with something, someone like me, 13 years later, realizing you made 1% and you get what, what happened. And then you're so, when you don't pay attention to your finance, well, what do you have to do to make a paycheck? Well, you have to go to work because I'm, I'm not Elon Musk. I don't produce cars. I don't produce a widget. Uh, I'm not Amazon uh, I'm not Jeff Bezos. When I'm asleep, I don't make money. I have to make I, the only way I make money is when I go to work. And so we exchange our life energy for a paycheck. And so if we don't go to work, we stop making a paycheck. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast for an interview with Dr. Tran. Vuket Tran is an emergency room physician that now also consults, advises, and mentors other physicians on personal financial health and investments to help them grow their wealth. We discuss the differences in healthcare systems of Canadian and the United States healthcare and his entrepreneurial path as well as his medical career. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. So, Vuket, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you very much for having me today. I am uh, very excited to be here. You have no idea. <laughs> well, you wear many hats and we'll, we'll get to all of them, um, but let's start with your medical hat. So you are an ER and family physician specializing in geriatric care with the University Health Network in Toronto. That's correct. I started off as an emergency doc and family doc and really fell into geriatric care about six years ago, where I currently, I'm also currently doing long-term care medicine. So I do three types of frontline medicine. So I have to ask, I mean, with, with quickly, we'll just spend a little bit of time on COVID, but, um, you know, obviously your patients have probably been the hardest hit. Yeah. Well, similarly in the U.S. as it was in Canada during the first wave, uh, most of the uh, mortalities were in the elderly people. And I was actually in a nursing home where it was the highest death in Canada, simply because, you know, it was very, uh, it was very sudden. We didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, we didn't have a lot of PPEs. So a lot of the PPEs went to acute care hospitals and nothing was really left for long-term care. And so long-term care was really left to defend for itself and it wasn't doing very well. 
And that was unfortunately the first wave. We're now in the, I think, wave number five now in Canada today. Uh, and uh, people are doing much better. Long-term care is doing much, much better. I, I don't know how it is in the U.S. currently. I think pretty similar. I think the first wave, no one, you know, it was a day by day, hour by hour, trying to, you know, solve problems and figure it out. And I'm not sure what wave they would technically say we're in, probably the same, but at least now I think that clinicians like yourself know a little bit more about what we're dealing with and how to help patients. So, you know, I think we're moving forward. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. But, you know, with every single wave and every new variant, it's like, it's like starting all over again, but at least we got some protection with uh, with the vaccine, and it seems to be, at least even if you're infected by the virus, it's not as bad. But the evidence is still not very strong yet for Omicron, so we'll have to see. Yeah, well, you know, thank you for doing what you do. I'm sure your patients are very grateful. Thank you. So let's provide a baseline for the listeners that may or may not know the differences in the healthcare systems between Canada and the U.S. So. In Canada, are there any private practice physicians or everybody that practices medicine is a government employee? Well, I would say that 95% of physicians in Canada work for the public system in the sense that our paycheck comes from the government, uh, a single payer, which is nice. Uh, 5% of us have elected to go, quote unquote, private. That means that these physicians are compensated by the patient themselves either through private pay, cash, checks, credit card, chicken, goat, whatever, whatever that means. Um, but 95% are paying paid by uh, a government agency that, uh, that pays us. Very similar to uh, Medicaid, I believe, uh, in, in the U.S. But even though we are paid by the government, we are considered self-employed and independent. And this this distinction is very, very important because it's very different from the U.S. physicians. Who, when I think I understand well is, is that the American physicians primarily work with groups of practices where they are employees of the group. Uh, and so they have an employee status, whereas in Canada, we have an independent self-employed status. Interesting. Do you think the single payer system makes it easier to practice medicine than it would be in our system where there's a lot of forces pushing against the healthcare system? So I do lecture quite a bit in the in the US. Um, so I do speak to my colleagues uh, in the US. And from what I understand, it's sort of like a horror story that I hear about in the US. In Canada, we do have similar horror stories, but in a different way. So I can't say that one system is better than the other. Um, this being said, I don't have a billing agent. Um, I have an EMR system. I bill through my EMR. It goes to the government. The government pays 100% of the time. I don't have to fight with them. I don't have to prove to them that I saw the patient. I don't have to prove to them that I did level one, two, three type of charting, whatever that means in the US. I just have to prove that I've treated my patient when I get audited. Um, so it's a very much an honor system that we have here. The government believes in us and trusts us that we actually did the work. And when we submit the billing, we submit once, we get paid. There may be some rejections here and there because of, you know, some billings are kind of wrong or patient health card number is wrong, those type of things. But never because, you know, Dr. Tran, you, you, you didn't provide that care. We don't trust you type of thing. And so it's very, it's very refreshing to have a single payer system because 
I don't have to chase you know five thousand insurance uh, carriers down to get my payment. Uh, and I get paid on a regular basis, uh, no questions asked. But the the one problem with the one pair system is that the one pair dictates how much I get. Mm. And so there are downsides to that. But I think all in all, uh, I do like this one pair system because it's really on an honor system. And there's a really good working relationship with the government. Do you see in Canada, do you see uh, some better patient outcomes than some of your U.S. counterparts? Oh, wow. That's a very difficult question to answer <laughs> because there's so many factors involved yeah. in patient outcome. Um, it has to do with, you know, whether it's single payer, multiplayer. It has to do with, you know, how how solid is primary care uh, in, in our countries. It depends on how solid is the specialty care. It also depends on access to health care. Uh, it also speaks to uh, equality. It speaks to simple things as, as public health, you know, water, sanitation, all those things. So it's not just the one answer, you know, one, one pair, better outcome, multiplayer, better outcome. I, it's The answer is really not as simple as that, unfortunately. No, I, that's completely fair. I just wanted to see your thoughts on it more than anything. Um, it is a very complex question. So even though... Yeah, but you know what? I, I think it's a fair question. For me, you know, as a physician, I, I absolutely love the fact that I only have to deal with one payer. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I think as a physician, with that part being a little bit more simplified, you can focus maybe, you know, a little bit more of your time on, you know, trying to solve the other problems of diagnosing your patients, for for instance. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I think I think that point you you brought up a uh, very important point. You know, you, you guys in the US know about our Canadian long wait times. Um, so if I, I want an MRI for my patient, uh, it may take somewhere between one day to six months, depending on what the urgency or what the situation and, and diagnosis I'm working with. But there may be a long wait, but it could be as short as a day. That being said, I don't need approvals by different uh, insurance carriers. I don't need to talk to someone to pre-approve my order. I, I put in the order. The radiologist at the hospital says, yeah, this makes sense. We're going to prioritize Dr. Tran's patient. We'll call him in tomorrow or we'll call him in, in three months. No one's going to turn down my request for an MRI. The hard part is obviously, depending on access, wait times can be long. Yeah, but I think it's, um, I mean, England has a single payer system. And I know my husband is originally from Brazil and they have a large public health system as well. So I think it's, I think it's similar. I mean, I, both systems are trying to solve different problems all in their own way. So I, everyone's trying to figure out how to deliver healthcare in a more efficient way that is cost-effective to a large amount of the population. And, and that's a very complex question. Right. And if you have the answer, please let me know. I'm, <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested to hear about it. Oh, I think that's above my pay grade, but I love having the discussion. And that's one of the reasons, you know, to put some of these ideas out here on, on this uh, forum is just to continue to talk about it. And because I started this, because I sensed a, this is a big problem and it doesn't really matter where you live. I think if you're in a first world country, you, you know, yes, you have these issues, but I mean, in third world countries, they don't even have access to healthcare. And so 
you know, I mean, not only in the U.S. does it have problems, but just everywhere. Um, there's there's just different problems depending on where you live. Yeah, yeah. Now I think you make a great point. Is uh, being a Canadian and and you guys living in the U.S. I think we have really one of the one number one number two best healthcare's in the world. So I'm I'm by any stretch of imagination, I will never complain about any of our healthcare systems. We have grade one healthcare systems with all the troubles and the flaws that it contains. It is one of the best in the world. So North American healthcare system, US, Canadian, very, very good healthcare, strong healthcare system. So I would never complain. Yeah, we're lucky. And um, so even though physicians are employees, they are able to own property independently where they can put their practice, correct? Uh, you're talking about, so in Canada, yes. So we are, we're not technically employees of the state. Uh, we are contracted to the state. So we are self-employed and we are contracted to the state. And because of the independent contracting, uh, we are our own corporation. So in Canada, which is very different from the US, Canadians can actually create a small business corporation. So my small business corporation contracts with the government and I, Vuketran, is the employee of my corporation. So my corporation can actually own uh, real estate um, and my corporation can own the real estate in which I set up my practice. And so as a family doctor, my corporation purchases land, purchase building, uh, purchase the real estate. I practice in that environment. So my corporation can own it outright. And are you also able, if you wanted to, to be a landlord, you know, buy a bigger building and put your practice in part of it and then have tenants, you know, just like any other piece of real estate and get the income from those tenants? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, my professional corporation essentially is a small business corporation. And so any small business can corporation can own a piece of real estate and rent out the rooms, the units to physicians, dentists, chiropractors, optometrists, uh, physio, imaging lab, name it, whatever you want to rent it out to. But for the corporation to own that piece of real estate, the practicing site or environment of the physician needs to be in the same building. Otherwise, it would be an investment building or investment real estate, which is not permitted inside a professional corporation. It is permitted for any small business corporation, but not a professional corporation. So the distinction here is the professional. And so for me as a family doctor, my, my corporation can only own the building and the real estate if I practice in it as well. With the rest of the units, if I choose to rent it out to other professionals, it could be done, but I myself have to practice in that environment. Well, and you are an entrepreneur as well. So you have an entrepreneurial hat and you advise other physicians on financial health. So how did you start down that path? Wow, that's a good story. I can tell you a good <laughs> I story. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> so this is why I started my own podcast. I have a podcast that teaches healthcare professionals and physicians how to um, how to create financial security first and then financial wealth second. But first is financial security. And here's my story. So when I first started practicing, I was a young lad. Um, I'm from Montreal, moved to Toronto, so knew no one. 
And I started practicing. I had a little bit of student debt, not as much as everybody else in the U.S. I had a bit of student debt. So I started practicing and started making money as a staff. Uh, and I went to the bank and say, hey, um, now that I'm making money, some money, what should I do with it? So, you know, they hook you up with a branch manager that tells you, Dr. Tran, let's do your KYC, which is know your client. And, you know, not surprisingly, doctors come out as conservative most of the time. So conservative type of investor. So they put me in different mutual funds. Here you go. Dr. Tran signed a dotted line here, which, you know, I, what do I know about finance? I'm a doctor. So I signed on the dotted line. And 13 years later, you know, as a doctor, I just worked my butt off just to go to my merch shift and do my family practice and care for my patients, paid really no attention to finance, which is the one mistake that we all do as healthcare professionals. So 13 years later, I'm a little bit smarter, a little bit more white hair and now have children. I'm like, and I go back to the bank and I say, hey, how did I do? You know, it says, you know, Vu, it's you've been doing great since inception. You've made one point something percent. And my jaw just dropped. <laughs> oh, no. Right. I'm like, how how is that great? I mean, I'll be it. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It was not too long after the 2008 crash also. Right. So, OK, let's put that into context. But still. And since inception, I made one point something percent. I'm like, what the what 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 just happened? I lost 13 years of investment opportunity. I was 13 years of compounding risk, and I I left that bank extremely angry, but not not at the bank manager. I was so angry at myself at how could I have let this go on for 12 12 13 years without paying attention? Vu, what were you doing? How can you do this to yourself? And I was so angry to the point where I said, no more. That's it. No more. So I started on a journey of learning. I started reading books, speaking to people, joining CFP, Certified Financial Planner, talking to advisors, and just reading and reading and reading. You know, instead of reading the New England Journal, I was reading financial books. Um, and I got so much kick out of it. I'm like, wow, how come I didn't know this? And the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know anything, right? Like most people, when you start learning, you realize you know nothing. And that got me interested into learning even more. And then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Am I the only one like this? Obviously, you know, there's always a bell curve, right? There's always the outliers who are really good and those who are really, really bad. But otherwise, all of us are in the middle bell curve. So I spoke to my colleagues. Well, how about this? Do you know that? Nobody knew anything. So I said, okay, well, since I read all these books, now that I've I got all this knowledge, how about I do something about it? And so I decided for the longest time to partner up with a CFP and doing some education on my own. And then COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, couldn't do anything, couldn't do education, couldn't do rounds. So I decided, you know what, what's the best way to reach people out there? Uh, so a friend of mine said, why don't you do a podcast? You can, you know, publish this over the airwaves. Whoever wants to listen to you can listen to you. It's free. I'm like, great. So uh, March 2020, COVID hit. April 2020, I put out my first podcast. And so now I've got uh, close to 76 episodes. And it's really about uh, just financial education and no, I know anything. I don't have a license to sell anyways. And so it's really purely education. And as I'm doing this, you know, the same fact come back over and over again. As healthcare professionals, we are very focused 
to our art, to our profession. We, we learn every day. We're lifelong learners about medicine, about how to care for people. Uh, but we neglect ourselves a lot. And that's the one downside of healthcare professionals. We care about other people, but we neglect ourselves. And, and at the end of the day, when you look at physicians and dentists and nurses, and you know, they're not different. You know, we're all the same. We we're very good at what we do. We master our art, but we neglect a very a big chunk of our lives, which is the finance side of our, our life. And we leave it to someone. Uh, and that someone that advisor could be a certified advisor. It could not be a certified advisor. And we don't know, and we don't, we don't care to know. And then you end up with something, someone like me 13 years later, realizing you made 1% and you get what, what happened. And then you're so, when you don't pay attention to your finance, well, what do you have to do to make a paycheck? Well, you have to go to work because I'm, I'm not Elon Musk. I don't produce cars. I don't produce a widget. Uh, I'm not Amazon. Uh, I'm not Jeff Bezos. When I'm asleep, I don't make money. I have to make I, the only way I make money is when I go to work. And so we exchange our life energy for a paycheck. And so if we don't go to work, we stop making a paycheck. And so what happens is that as healthcare professionals, well, we have more debt. Uh, we have to pay down the student loan. Now we have kids, and and now we have private school. And then, oh yeah, suddenly I, I've got the house. And then with that house, I need to drive a car. And now with that car, I need some furniture for the house. So expense just keeps on mounting, and we now have to work more and more just to make more and more paycheck. But that's a silly, stupid way of doing things. And so I'm teaching physicians one how to live within their means and, and stop following the Joneses. But two, how to use your time to make money efficiently. And to be honest, the best way to make money efficiently is to have money make money. <laughs> Otherwise, you're making money with your back, hands and eyes and brain and feet. Um, and if you don't want to do that, then you work the amount of time that you want to work. You work the, the job and the work that you want to work. And then of the rest, let your money make money. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm going to stop being a physician. It just means that, you know what? I choose not to do that night shift or I choose not to do that weekend shift because I want to spend time with my kids and my spouse and I, I want to go on vacation and I still want to do all that, but I don't want to break my back just trying to get to that point. There are other ways to do it. And so teaching physicians and healthcare professionals to think like that is extremely hard because we've never been trained that way, ever. There's no personal finance curriculum in med school, in dental school, in nursing school. There's just not enough time. And so when we know nothing about that, well, the less we know, the, le the more uncomfortable we are. And the more uncomfortable we are, the less we pay attention to it. Because, you know, as human beings, we don't want to be embarrassed of not knowing. So, Let's just focus on the things that I know because I don't want to be embarrassed. And so two things happen in healthcare. One, we are embarrassed of not knowing, and you can't have that. We're all type A people, right? You know, physicians got to be physicians because they're all at the top of their class before they got into med school. They're all type A people, but then you all of a sudden they know nothing about finance. You can't talk about that. First of all, it's, it's taboo. And two, as physicians and healthcare professionals, we help other people. That's what we do. That's our calling. But when you talk about personal finance, you're you're helping yourself. There's a disconnect there. There's a certain there's a certain dirtiness to it, right? When you think about it, you say, "Well, 
wait a minute, if I'm a physician, am I not supposed to help that other person? And if I talk about finance, I'm actually helping myself. That doesn't jive with my own psyche. And so physicians do not want to talk about finance because it's sort of a dirty topic. We, we can't help ourselves. We can't talk about ourselves because we can't better ourselves. We can only better other people, but we can't better ourselves. So therefore, it becomes a taboo topic in medicine and in, in, in all healthcare professions. I think the only, the only profession that does, that does not do this, and, and I congratulate them for not doing this, are the dentists. I would say the dentists, they do, uh, I think, a good job. They do a very good job. I actually think that the finance education should start in elementary school. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, because right now, I think some schools, depending on the school, they do touch on it. Or when you're in high school, you can take a, an elective. But in reality, unless your parents teach you, you could be 18 years old going off to college and not know how to balance a checkbook, which is why all those credit card companies are sitting right there with, with um, you know, these booths attracting these college students that don't know anything about, um, some of them don't know anything about credit cards. And they're just like, sure, yeah, I can buy now and pay later. And they know nothing about um, interest rates. And, and that's when I think the personal debt starts to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. To be honest, to this day, I still don't know how to balance a budget. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, this is like, yeah, I mean, budgeting's not fun. It's not sexy. No one, you know, I mean, accountants and finance people, I think, do like to do it, but it is, it's a, it's um, time consuming, it's tedious, and, you know, it requires you to really think about what you're spending your money on and projections on revenue and, and yeah. <laughs> So um, when you're talking to to other physicians, do you um, you know how do you how does real being a physician owner of, of real estate um, fit into your conversations? Do you promote it as a way for them to make have their money make money? Uh, I promote it in several ways, and it really depends on their own philosophy. Some, as I mentioned, physicians and people in healthcare tend to be conservative, but I find that in Canada. I don't know about the U.S., but I find that in Canada, everybody loves real estate. Um, and I find that physicians in Canada love real estate too. But some of us are more adventurous than others. Some of us are more conservative. So when I talk to them about you know, how to not use their head, brain, back, eyes, hands, feet to make money, uh, instead of having money make money, obviously, they need to have some savings. So I start with savings. Do you need to have savings to actually invest afterwards? Otherwise, there's nothing for you to invest. But once you start with the saving and now you have something to invest and I, and I feel right to you. Um, some people like ETF and index funds and that want to do. They don't want to get into the real estate uh, business. But even if they want to get into the real estate business, there's also public REITs. There are also private REITs that you can, you can um, jump into. There are also alternative uh, products uh, based in real estate that you can jump into, and there's actual real estate. Um, and as I mentioned, Canadians love real estate. All you have to do is just read the news in Canada. Like just last week, um, the the average price of a standalone house in Toronto or in the greater Toronto area jumped by 25% compared to last year, right? So 
I think it does happen in Arizona, Phoenix as well, and it happens in several uh, U.S. Uh, cities as well. But when you think about you know year to year jump of twenty five percent in real estate, it's it's crazy. And so, real estate has been a, a big driver of the economy here in Canada. And so a lot of people have jumped into it. And for me, it's just another way of diversifying, right? Um, and when we talk about investment, we talk about safe, logical, stable investment. Obviously, we talk about diversification. People talk about diversification in ETFs and index funds and stuff like that, but that's only in the market. But you can also diversify in assets. And so if we don't talk about other assets like real estate, like life insurance. I find life insurance as a different asset. Um, And so diversification means all of that. And so real estate absolutely is another one that I love a lot because of the boom that we've had in Canada over the last, I would say, a good 25 years now. And so real estate has been really good to us. Uh, Not so much the same in the U.S. uh, from 2008, right? (laughs) So you can understand a a lot of people could still be scared based on the 2008 event in the U.S., but that did not happen in Canada. And so Canadians are very bullish on real estate uh, in general. That's nice. Well, uh, we are at the part of the interview where we we get to know you a little bit with some Q&A. So uh, what was your first job? My first job, I was a hairdresser. So um, as a young boy, I worked in my mom's uh, hairdressing salon, started by uh, sweeping the floors um, and then moved up to uh, shampoo and then moved up to tainting and perm and eventually moved up to cutting hair. Uh, eventually got a diploma in aesthetics and facials and uh, mani and pedi. Uh, and then from there, went into med school. I love that story. That's great. What would you be doing for a living if you were not a physician? I'd be a chef. Um, I'm a foodie. I love to eat. I would love, I try everything and anything. At least once I would try it. Um, and uh if I wasn't a physician, I'd, I'd be a chef, but, you know, I like to innovate and I, I like to do different things and do things that are not common to everybody. So I'm not quite sure what kind of chef I would be, but it would be one of those that, you know, very similar to uh, Anthony Bourdain or, or those type of people who who is, is way out there that would try a bunch of things and, and create new things. That's the type of chef that I think I would be. Well, sometimes the best things are made when you're not, you know, unintentionally, you know, when you're trying to make something else and there's a different uh, result. Absolutely. So what or who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information, or inspiration? So I, I like right now, I, I love to read finance books more than I like to read medical journals right now. Uh, I am so tired of hearing about covid that I enjoy now reading different books. And the books that I'm currently reading is from uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, his new book called Noise. I find it exciting. Uh, I'm reading another book by another Canadian called The Smith Maneuver. It's very very Canadian-based, very focused on how to use your real estate (laughs) to um, 
to use it as a good debt and to leverage. It's very Canadian focused, but I am absolutely certain that your audience would take this book and take the learning and run with it. And instead of having one real estate, they'll probably end up having five, 10, 15 in a very, very short period of time. Um, it's a very good book that talks about different tax strategies. Um, now, the, the one difference uh, between US and Canada, as you know, in the US, your primary residence, you can deduct uh, the, ta- the interest off your income, mm-hmm. whereas in Canada, you cannot do that. So that's one major flaw in the Canadian tax system. But uh, the different learnings from this book could be applied to the U.S. as well, even though there's huge differences in income tax structures between our two countries. So when people ask, what was my, I mean, I went to business school a really long time ago, but what was my most fascinating course? It was tax planning and strategy. And I have not pursued anything with it other than that class, unfortunately. But when I have more free time, I I, I just I find it incredibly interesting. Well it's it's even more interesting in Canada because uh we are probably one of the highest tax countries in the world. Um it we're a very socialized type of country, very similar to uh, France and, and Australia and UK, but our tax structure is is very very complicated, and a lot of our a lot of our earnings go to tax to pays for to pay for the public goods and services. It's normal, um, but we our tax system is very very uh, cumbersome, and in my mind is it is the biggest wealth destroyer that you can find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you can manage your tax as well, and I'm not saying avoid tax, <laughs> I'm saying manage tax. Because right. We should never avoid tax. We have to pay back to society. But uh, there are ways to do it in an efficient manner. And so uh, to do it well is, is being able to save potentially millions of dollars over time, which are, you know, million dollars is a lot of hours that I don't have to go work. Right. Exactly. So what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? I sleep a lot. Um, When my children were young, I used to go to bed with them. So they went to bed around 7.30. So I'd go to bed with them at 7.30. um, And and I would wake up at, you know, five or six. So I would have my almost 10, 11 hours of sleep. Uh, Now I try to go to bed at nine and wake up at five. So I still have my nine hours. Sometimes I have my 10 hours and uh, I find that good sleep, refreshing sleep uh, changes everything. Um, And it helps you focus. And when I'm with patients, when I'm at work, uh, it is so much more efficient when I, when I have a real restful sleep. Have you heard of the book or read why we sleep? Is it by Dr. James Mass? No, I don't have the author currently with me, but um, it's a great book. It does get pretty technical. Um, I listened to it on audiobook. I think reading it probably would have taken me a lot longer because I would have put it down and picked it back up. But um, it's a great, great book. So I, I'm I'm certain that it is uh, because the teachings in there are, are most likely the same as what uh, Dr. James Mass is teaching in his book. Um, also on sleep, where he describes how the brain functions and how your productivity and performance <laughs> increases the more you sleep. Um, so I'm sure it's that same type of theory. But yeah. having good night's sleep is a 
is a good way of having a, a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Do you think a person is born with the desire to heal? I believe so. Um, I All I have to do is just look at my daughter. My daughter is currently nine. But when she was born uh, until now, she has always had a nurturing type of quality to her. Um, and, and she's not a doctor, so she's never learned how to do any of that. But she's very nurturing and she likes to heal and she likes to help. And she likes to help her older brother, who's 13, who tries to bully her at every single opportunity he has. Um, but, but she's always trying to heal. And, and I think that we are that type of people. Um, and I think we're born that way. Obviously, we get training to be better, to be healthcare professionals and, and nurses and, and other professionals. But I think deep down inside, humans like to help other human beings. I agree with that. Well, Vuket, this has been a wonderful interview. I very much appreciate your taking the time. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Trisha. As I said, I was uh, really, really excited to be on your show. Uh, it's not very often that uh, we get to transcend the airwave and a Canadian gets to reach all the way down to the U.S. And so I really, really um, enjoyed this. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.